So hi, and welcome to the Story of Software podcast. My name is Padre Coffey. I'm the CEO of Zartis and your podcast host. And today we're joined by Connor Murphy, who is a technologist, entrepreneur, investor, and optimist. Uh, Connor, is that a, a good way to describe you? Definitely optimistic. I'm trying on all the other ones, but I think I've been pretty consistent on the optimistic front today, I'd say. Fantastic. Uh, Connor, to kick off with, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your journey. So uh, like myself, you're originally from Cork. Uh, I know you went to university in Cork and you've had a very, very impressive career in the tech sector. Maybe you could, uh, to begin with, tell us a little bit about how that launched and, and the path you followed. Yeah, I suppose like my earliest kind of memories of tech were remember getting like Nintendo a two eight six back in the day and trying to get games like Civilization to work and and uh, I loved computers ever since and uh, I did computer science in UCC really enjoyed that uh, particularly the software side of it less so the kind of hardware and architecture side but really enjoyed building then I got my first professional experience working with Sun Microsystems as an intern which was great like Sun were eighty five percent of the internet were running on on them at the time in two thousand two thousand and one. Their tagline was where the dot and dot com and unfortunately dot com then crashed and they crashed while I was there. It was an interesting experience, but working on, you know, real operating systems, Solaris 8 and Solaris 9, regression testing, like really back-end engineering, mouse kernels and mouse drivers and everything and having debug an operating system was, was pretty cool. So it was a great deep dive into software. From there, I actually had my first startup in college uh, around my final year project, turned it into a two-year kind of startup adventure with a team with a few buddies and we worked on that for two years, kind of literally in my parents' attic. Um, this is 2001, 2002, into 2003. Didn't really know what we were doing, but actually looking back, it was quite successful for what it was at the start in terms of early traction, but didn't have a clue how to monetize it, didn't have a clue about business. I realized I was very good at programming and I enjoyed that part of it, but I didn't know about business. So an opportunity came up to move to London to join a management consultancy firm, you know, and I thought that'd be a great opportunity for two years, maybe to learn, you know, how to be more professional and how a big organization works. You know, you have that imposter syndrome as a student, you don't really know how business works. So joined PA Consulting Group for what I thought would be two years, ended up being six years with them. That was an amazing experience in terms of, you know, getting all the soft skills and, you know, presentation skills and facilitation skills and a lot of these business skills while still leveraging my technology skills. And that gave me a lot of confidence because you know, every three months was a new project, new clients, new geography, new team, new industry. That really sort of scratched the entrepreneurial itch as well because it was like nonstop change, nonstop challenge. And just as you're getting on top of something, getting bored maybe, or even close to getting bored, you're on to the next project. So that was really great. It was a great experience looking back now for you know, being an entrepreneur and building more software systems, but, and also being an investor as well. So you get the pattern match and see a lot of different industries and know just enough about different areas, which is fascinating. I might cut across you there for a moment, Connor, because I think it's quite interesting if we, if we touch on the kind of consulting world, because uh, consultancy in the software world is it's kind of different in different geographies. And um, what I mean by that is, like in Ireland, many of the best and the brightest go into the consulting world. And in Spain, where Zartis has a lot of its engineers employed, the consulting world is seen as kind of subpar. And, you know, people aren't generally very attracted to work in that environment. So it's quite different if you go to different places. And I'm kind of wondering if you have a, a perspective on, on why that might be. Like, what is it that, why is it that in Ireland, like really bright computer science or BIS graduates are attracted to work in consulting, whereas it's seen as a kind of a last resort for, uh, for a software graduate in a place like Spain? 
my observation, kind of, you know, I'm out of college now since 2002, so obviously it's changing every day as well. But around then, there wasn't, like, I was lucky I was able to work in a real software job with, you know, Sun Microsystems. But when I graduated, what I know a lot of my class couldn't get jobs as well, so it was a tough time to graduate as well. But if you look at like a small economy like Ireland, um, like my sister and a lot of people I know joined, for example, Accenture. Um, and I would say that they have excellent people in Ireland, whereas when I joined PA Consulting Group in the UK, there's, you realize this is a much bigger market for management consulting, and I imagine Spain would be like that. So Spain, I imagine, has offices of McKinsey, probably PA has an office there, Bain. So you have all these strategy consultancy firms that are there. Then you have these other consultancy firms like Accenture um, and some of the bigger names, which are big implementation um, kind of um, providers, which might do a two to five year project of you know, revamping some utility system and some water utility, you know. And then you have these niche consultancies as well. So you have a much bigger, more mature kind of consultancy market there. The big system integrators, you know, it's not as exciting software work. So probably is not as exciting place to go. Whereas in Ireland, Accenture was probably doing more of the strategy stuff. So actually you got to do the mixture of technology and business uh, because there was no competition really. There was no McKinsey's, there was no PA really there. So it was a small market. So actually you get these weird dynamics of consulting where you know, Accenture in Dublin might be amazing and Accenture in France mightn't be tier one, it might be tier two. So I think you get those you know, nuances within the consultancy industry as well. And I think the other thing is the timing. Now I imagine more people who are doing software, there's more software roles in Spain and in Ireland that they will go straight into and they can specialize there. So I think that's probably another big change as well. Interesting. And Connor, what would have been your first real startup experience? I know you mentioned that, that you guys launched one when you were in university, but post your consulting career, what was your first venture into the, the startup world? Yeah, so just, just on that, actually, you know, what is, what is a real startup experience, I suppose, you know, so, um, so the, the real in terms of, you know, VC backed and actually, you know, charging clients revenue. Um, all of those things was Datahug. Um, Datahug was right after PA Consulting Group, and that was a problem I saw across um, all of my consulting clients. Was it was very hard to understand who knew who within an organization. Uh, it was very inefficient, and there was tools like LinkedIn and stuff like that. And we had all these CRMs, and you find within a fragmented organization, there'd be multiple CRMs, multiple teams, multiple divisions, all working off different kind of systems and approaches. So well, what we thought was common across all companies and all businesses was communication. You were constantly communicating with your clients and your network. So we said, what if we could mine the communication there within the business? So all the emails, the phone calls, the calendars, the contacts, all those digital interactions, and not look at what actually has been communicated, but who you're interacting with. And very simply, you could mine all that data and you could build like a LinkedIn on steroids, where basically we could understand who within Zartas uh, knew who. I could type in, you know, Pfizer, and I see Porig was chatting with, you know, uh, four people at Pfizer last week, knows 65 people there and is actually meeting Susan there next week. And then when, so if it had me get in the door, I could see actually Porig, my colleague, is already dealing with Pfizer. Or from an account manager, I could see, oh, no one in the whole team has spoken to anyone in Pfizer in the last two months. So that's kind of weird. We want to fix that. Or Porig is leaving the company tomorrow. How much relationship capital is walking out the door? You know, so it unlocked all of this insight automatically for large enterprises and large networks, leveraging the technology that they'd already invested in when they had archived material of emails going back seven to 10 years. So we could unlock all of that, not just for the current employees, but also for all their alumni. And um, so it was this amazing opportunity to give these businesses full insight into their network. 
Connor, that might kind of give businesses uh, an insight into like who the real rainmakers are. Like what, you know, maybe they should be making more of an effort to hang on to like uh, Susan or Johnny or Frankie from the sales team that like if one of those three walks out the door, that there's a huge, uh, huge blow coming towards the business, I guess. Yeah, it was mass. We call them the hidden heroes where the business kind of focused more and more on a use case around sales forecasting. And was you know relative to that as well. Like that's to the three of us are in sales. There's three people in sales, and you know I say like I closed that million dollar deal. It only took me three months. Blah 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 blah. You know, data would show actually. Well, you were chatting to that person for the last year, and actually Susan in pre-sales did 25 meetings with them as well. So you can spot all those hidden heroes and the real cost of sales. Um, and also, what was more important, you could actually do a lot of predictive work around um, forecasting. So you could see like, oh, okay, Porig and John. Um, they have two deals in there for this quarter for a million dollars. And you can see like Porig is chatting to Pfizer all day, every day. You're sending emails, you're sending calendar invites, you're, you're updating them, but they're not getting back to you. Uh, and it's kind of like dating. Like if you reach out to someone you're dating and you're sending them 10 messages and they don't get back to you, you can be optimistic. And this can be the curse of optimism where you think that date's happening Saturday night. But the graph just shows, yeah, they're not getting back to you. It's probably not happening. It's not happening this quarter. They're not introducing to their friends and legal and procurement, uh, the CIO to do security assessment. None of that's happening. And just looking at the communication data, sales forecasts went from about 64% accuracy, like that's best in class, to suddenly 94 to 95% accuracy straight away. So that became our kind of killer feature because then every CFO and VP of sales wanted it because they didn't want to get fired by you know, reporting to the street, reporting to the board, you know, forecast that, you know, we're only 64% accurate. So this allowed them to take preventative measures early on and allowed them to give more accurate forecasts and coach their teams. And that became a lot more repeatable, scalable. And that became the business that ultimately we sold then and is now part of SAP. Connor, could you tell us a little bit about the the exit from uh, Data Hugs? I'm guessing it was your your first uh, big exit, and uh, it would be interesting to know uh, both in terms of like how it evolved and also maybe the kind of emotions around that. Because I know there's a lot of budding entrepreneurs and actual entrepreneurs that listen to this podcast, and I think it would be interesting for them to understand. Like, is there a kind of a sense of like? selling your child or something because people get so emotionally involved in their startups. What was that fallout like for you? Yeah, so I think there's three areas you kind of need to understand probably as a startup founder. And I think I understood product and software. Like I could, I built version one of Datahug, you know, and I was very involved in the coding and architecture. Like building software and building products was kind of my wheelhouse. And I would describe myself as a product person. So that was kind of heaven to build your own product for that long and focus on that. So that was like a big emotional kind of joy. Um, I think having been in the consultancy world, I understood the business side of it pretty well. You know, building proposals, sales, selling and navigating professional services. So that was kind of great. But the third part, you know, often your first time founder will have industry experience and some sort of product or technical insight, but they won't have the VC insight and how the funding world works. And that for me was a massive learning curve. And I would say, you know, 50% of my time was just focused on funding and engaging investors and how to communicate and when you're working in a consultancy firm, you kind of deliver a project emotionally you're not as attached to it, which makes you actually very effective. You come in for three months, six months, work on a problem, solve the problem, move on. But when it's your own, then you obviously get, you know, you get quite emotionally attached to the product. And so you become a bit more emotional and less logical, which helped me understand, you know, looking back as a consultant, I was like, it was so obvious what to do often. You'd walk into a company where they'd been working together for five, 10 years and politics had set in, 
and emotions had set in and people just couldn't realize that actually they're all cold because the window was open and you're like why don't we just close the window and they're like you're a genius um so that kind of um distance you lose um which obviously you're fueled by the passion you're fueled by all of the emotion around that but that quite becomes quite draining but then yeah so i'd say the first time out like most of the mistakes i made were really about you know understanding how cap tables work and how boards work and how expectation management across your investors work um, and that meant that you know we, I didn't optimize or do as good a job as I could there um, and also in terms of building the culture while fundraising while selling so there was a lot of mistakes made there that I made and you know we didn't get despite having a great product I think which we knew we could build despite being in a great market uh, how to actually finance and kind of manage that business and keep control of the business was something I wasn't optimizing for or thinking for in terms of equity and presuming everyone was in alignment. So ultimately, we had offers to buy, to sell the company, and we started having arguments around that. We had arguments over direction of the company, and then ultimately control of the company, and I ended up leaving the company uh, before the exit, which wasn't my plan, having started this company. Um, and then, you know, we sold the company, and it wasn't the scale of exit we thought or hoped for the business, but it was enough for us all to kind of, you know, move on uh, learn our lessons and then you know think about what we want to do again next time you know connor I, I guess from that experience and from many subsequent experiences uh you've become pretty au fait with the world of venture capital over the span of that time have you seen the behavior of vcs changing or has the vc world evolved vis-a-vis -vis how they they treat startups I'm not sure if the VC world is so much changed. I'm not blaming the VC world. The VC world is the VC world. You just need to understand how it works. And I think what was missing for me first time out was the, probably the mentorship and kind of um, network of other founders and peers that I could call on, that I could kind of like, hey, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Um, so that's why I was very interested to join Techstars afterwards when I joined Techstars as a mentor first and as an EIR. Um, and then I joined as managing director and I'm still involved as a venture partner. What I loved about Techstars was it was really, it was that information gap by providing you with mentors of founders who had raised, you know, five, 10 million, you know, and we'd raised about seven and a half million for Data Hub. Um, so people who had been there, who'd made the mistakes and were very willing to give first, and they were very much founder oriented. So they were kind of angels and they were involved in VC, but they were very much doing it more often and often the perspective of the founder and they had been a founder before. So that was looking back, like the biggest gap in terms of knowledge was actually my network gap. Um, so I, again, I knew the technology, I knew the market, but I didn't know how to navigate VC. And I also didn't have a peer network of founders. Like I knew people who were very successful management consultants and very successful developers. So we could hire an amazing team and build an amazing team. And our architecture was amazing. And you know, MongoDB was in every day with us and we were helping them build out their roadmap. So those areas we were good at, but we just had a massive blind spot when it comes to how to build a venture-backed startup, what expectations are around that, how to think about equity, all of those things. And that was really down to a lack of my own network in that area. And that's why I love Techstars because a founder can join there. And within the first two weeks of Techstars, they meet a hundred people who become their mentors and um, they get to hear, you know, the, the warts and all story behind closed doors of founders telling, you know, in more detail where they made the mistakes. Um, and I was really lacking that first time um, and second time out. Um, so uh, now that I've started a new company, it's great to be able to leverage that. And also having been an investor for the last two, three years with Techstars as well, and as an angel investor post Data Hook's exit, having invested and supported 30 other companies gives you a lot more empathy for the VC side as well. So I don't really believe there's bad people in the world. I think there's just bad matches. And, uh, you know, I think I had a lot of bad matches. They were great people, but we just weren't a good fit.
So those lessons and that network really helps me next time out and also helps me be a better mentor and angel investor when I work with other early stage founders. Um, Connor, I think you'd be very well positioned to explain a little bit about the, the VC model and how that works because very often startup entrepreneurs get involved with VCs without really understanding the model. And I think that would be very interesting if we could cast a little bit of light on that. But I think it's more the alignment, basically, like going back to that emotional point, this is your one great idea, Dick. this is your great love affair. And you presume, you know, being optimistic as well and being naive, you presume everyone you talk to, you know, whether it's an investor or co-founder or people joining, they're all going to be at the exact same level of alignment and just get it the way you get it. But as, as I said there, as an investor, like I got 30 different investments. So like that's 30 different kind of grandkids versus one kid, you know, and cousins, let's say. So. Like it's not the end of the day for me if your startup fails. So the alignment issue is really the biggest thing to kind of understand. Like the investor is very excited. They want to invest. They put in their 1 million, 2 million, but they have, you know, 50 other checks to write over the next two, three years, four years. Just understand that alignment. Um, and then it means, you know, if you meet them very quick, like my first investor put in 1.5 million, I knew them 40 minutes, you know? So that was a massive failure in terms of, cultural fit, communication, style, what's our strategy for the business? You know, we had five different term sheets. This investor came in. They're amazing. They're absolutely brilliant. Um, but they weren't necessarily brilliant or amazing for us. Like we needed probably more earlier stage, mentor driven, more aligned with our stage, with more empathy with our stage and could have coached us and be that mentor rather than being that VC at the other side of the table um, and, you know, having two board seats and all that kind of stuff. So there's just a lot of fundamental structural stuff and then, you know, alignment. And that's just getting to know people and just knowing we're on the same page. What happens when we disagree? What's your vision for the future? What's my vision for the future? And if they strongly believe you have to go left and you strongly believe you have to go right and you haven't worked together before, it's a very weak foundation. And I've seen what happens you know, with that weak foundation. You have very little, you've very little history of working together and how to resolve conflict and issues together, which just brings an extra level of tension to the business that you don't need. And it's kind of a surprise to you because you're like, you presume everyone's on the same page, but presumption and lack of communication is usually the cause of a lot of these uh, issues, you know. Indeed. Connor, if we were just to step back for a moment and, and go to your kind of post-data hug days. So, you know, in the aftermath of, of data hug, what was your, your next move after that? And, uh, you know, how did you... Uh, how did you, I suppose, channel what you learned from that experience into your subsequent ventures? Yeah, so right after DataHug, you're kind of exhausted because you're mentally on this roller coaster. So I think it's you know, very hard to get straight back into another startup. Um, plus, you have some non-competes. And if you're very passionate about that area, which I still am, and I'm still, like I joke, my latest startup is basically DataHug 2.0, DataHug done differently. So I joke, I only have what I regard as one good idea. Uh, I just, I'm consistent and I keep trying to solve that problem. So... In between to recharge the batteries, what was really good and almost like self-therapy was mentoring and mentoring as a set of tech stars and meeting other early stage founders um, who were just starting out, who were three months in, six months in, a year in, had raised maybe a few hundred K, were, you know, at that stage, we were still pre-product market fit. So I thought I had a very, I really enjoyed that stage and I thought it was good at that stage in the product and the market side. But I also now had the battle scars of having raised, you know, a seed round and a series A raised from corporates, raised from you know, American VCs, American angels, and then having sold the company or, or having left the company before even sold. So I thought I had a lot to give in terms of mentoring and Techstars, had just, I'd moved to Berlin and Techstars had just opened in Berlin and I became a mentor there. So that, 
became very uh, important and a great way for me to kind of give back to help other people and kind of give the advice I wanted to get or I needed to hear probably three, four years earlier. So that was kind of a great interim and a great place um, for me to feel like, you know, I could kind of figure out, by explaining to other people, I could figure out my own mistakes. I think the definition of failure that I heard from a mentor was, you know, the definition of failure is blaming other people. Whereas actually, you know, give yourself six months, give yourself a year, and you can look back and analyze, okay, I made that decision. This is the decision I controlled. This is the point where I messed up. I think then being honest with yourself, there gives you time to reflect and understand. And, you know, um, first off, you know, articulate that by giving advice and mentorship to other early stage founders. And then, you know, hearing that yourself, um, hopefully listening to your own advice and leveraging that for the next startup. I'd be very interested in your sense of what startup founders need to have in mind in this post-COVID world. So, you know, the entire landscape has changed and I think we don't even really understand the extent to which it's changed yet or how that change is going to manifest itself. And I guess you're, you're finding yourself advising early stage founders and CEOs, etc. What are the kind of messages you're giving them in this new world? Well, like the context changes, the whole thing is like, you know, COVID comes along, but there's some fundamental truths that I think are consistent, depend, you know, irrelevant of, of COVID. And, and just to contrast that, so like the question was for myself, do I want to go back into, you know, double down and become a venture capitalist and, you know, raise a fund and join a bigger fund and write bigger checks and spend the next 10, 20 years doing that? And I absolutely loved that. I love backing early stage founders and just, you know, investing. But actually, I still had a, you know, itch to scratch with Datahug and I said, I started a new company as well. So... I started a new company, you know, 17, 18 people. That company is called Bridge. It's still private beta. But I think to contrast that from Datahug could be a way to kind of answer that question. So, like, we started Bridge before COVID, and we actually decided then what you would do today if you were starting a company. We decided to build a fully distributed company from day one. So this was pre-COVID. We decided to make that because we believe, you know, that has allows us to build a very different type of software company from Datahug. Or data hug, we were in Dublin, people had to fly in, like we hired people from New York, from London, they moved over, we had people from Canada, they all came to Ireland, we had to get them visas, do all that kind of stuff. And it was great to have everyone there in the office and we're figuring everything out. Whereas now, I think you'd start a distributed team and COVID has proven that to everyone who is doubting it, that that can be done. But what it means from a talent point of view is, you know, we can, we can access talent over the world. We have teammates in Venezuela, in Prague, in Belfast, in Dublin, in the Philippines and Indonesia. And on the flip side, it means we need to focus on communication more. So I think uh, then you need to be more intentional about how you build your business, intentional about how you communicate. So we set up a lot of processes and started doing a lot more writing and a lot more internal communications. And one of our four core values is over-communicate. So how we build a company is very, very different as well. But it also suddenly means you can access in the angels and investors from all over the world as well, which changes that dynamic as well. So, you know, you're thinking internationally from day one, you're also thinking about culture from day one. And I would say like the difference between a first-time founder and a second-time founder is, you know, the saying is like first-time founders are obsessed with product and second-time founders are obsessed with distribution. And I would totally buy into that. So I think, you know, I advise people as well, like, yeah, product can be built and there's loads of tools. You can build MVPs and everything and software is, is relatively something you can control and predict to a certain extent. But your go-to-market is usually the hardest challenge. And that's where I struggle probably with Datahug as well. So I often advise founders, like, start with your go-to-market or obsess with marketing and how you get leads into your beta or into your enterprise funnel. Focus on that as soon as possible as well. I think that's irrelevant of COVID, but I think the sooner you get a handle on that, um, the, I'm less concerned when I invest in companies. I never ask to see demos. I never ask to see the product. I want to hear how the founders think 
about go-to-market. And I think go-to-market is the area I kind of spend my time focusing on as a founder and as an investor. Connor, what personal qualities do you think company founders need in order to start and then to scale a company? So we talked earlier, I think like a core value you see often is optimism. And uh, I think you, you talked about, you know, the distortion reality effect where you can kind of convince yourself this is worth doing as well. So I think you're optimistic. I think it's something you consistently see, which uh, I enjoy being around optimistic people. And usually founders have that can-do attitude. Let's just solve a problem. We're not pessimistic and we're not always pragmatic either as well, but it's good to have a balance of that. I think the second point is that you mentioned founders. So if you're going to have a co-founder, First time I had a co-founder, this time I don't have a co-founder, I'm doing a, a single founder journey. So what I advise people to do when you're looking at a co-founder is probably look for kind of different skill sets or clear kind of divisions of expertise, like I'm really strong at marketing, you're really strong on product or whatever that is. So you can have differences in your skill sets, which I think is great, but you should have consistency and alignment in your values. So I would make sure if you have your, your co-founders or your early founding team members that you're very much aligned around values it's okay to have different skill sets. In fact, that's better. As long as you have similar values, I think you have a great foundation to get started. Fantastic. Uh, Connor, one last question for you. What was the reason behind deciding to go it alone this time, not to have co-founders on board? I guess it's a different, it's a different experience you're having and one that you've chosen. What was the kind of mindset that guided you in that direction? You know, it was just very organic. It wasn't like a real conscious decision, but I just had the idea, a good buddy, uh, Chico, who's now our CTO, had been helping me on the side, kind of like test out and build MVP and you know, work with one or two freelancers to get that going. So it just started very organically. And I think probably the biggest insight I had from Datahug was, and I had an amazing co-founder in terms of qualifications and skill and work ethic, but we didn't necessarily align and envision kind of later on when the stress came. And that caused you know, a lot of tension, you know, there's all this extra decision making. So having a co-founder is, is amazing in many regards, but also can slow you down in some regards. If, but I think the thing I learned most was actually, if I looked at the rest of the team at Datahub, the commitment from the team members was absolutely amazing. So I think if you can get amazing people on your team, it would be hard to differentiate, I'd say, amongst five to 10 people at Datahub who are all co-founder grade, you know what I mean? Who all worked and were committed as much as any co-founder. So I realized that, you know, if it's more, even look back at my own consulting career, like, you know, I was hired by a client to do something, but I was there to, I was working 14, 16 hour days and I was in my twenties for some of these projects that I, if I cared about the project, I cared about my craft. I wanted to get better at what I was doing. I wanted to improve my career. Like there's amazing talent all over the world who want to build something important and build something valuable and build something they're proud of and actually improve their skills and improve their network and also be remunerated you know, well for that. So I think that realization that, you know, having the experience, I didn't necessarily need a co-founder. Whereas I think first time you really probably do need a co-founder a lot of the time, because as I said, 50% of my time was fundraising or figuring out how to do fundraising, which meant I wasn't in the office. I wasn't at product meetings. I wasn't at customer success meetings. I didn't have all those opportunities to spend in the business. I had to be outside the business, you know, building the relationships with VCs, getting on planes, flying to London, flying to New York, flying to San Fran, going to conferences, building the network from scratch, um, which is very hard to do and run a business. Whereas I'm lucky 10 years on now, I have a pretty strong network of a good understanding of that. So I can spend an awful lot less time in the market fundraising and understanding VC. So I can spend a lot more time in the business. So I'd spend you know, 90% of my time in the business, which is great. You know. Connor, I'm, I'm going to ask you one more question. So like myself, you grew up in Cork. How did growing up in Cork 
shape you as an entrepreneur? Or to what extent did it impact on your, your approach to business? Like Cork is a, a small village in the west of Europe, you know. Uh, but if you're from Cork, you think it's pretty, you know, it's the biggest county, biggest state in Ireland. Um, it's the second biggest city in the Republic of Ireland. Um, and, you know, growing up there, there was always the local sports teams always seemed to be winning stuff. There seemed to be a, a really strong attitude that we can do anything there. So it was a, it was a small city, but it was everyone I always met from Cork, I always, you know, looking back and comparing that around the world, always had a very optimistic view very international view because we weren't the biggest city in Ireland. We'd moved to Dublin or moved to London, moved to New York. So a lot of my buddies from the world moved all over the world and did very well all over the world because, you know, I think they had very good people skills. They were very confident and they were very uh, optimistic uh, in terms of what they could do. And they weren't shy about telling people that they could do it, you know. So I know that's true for, is that just a Cork thing? Within Ireland, there would be a reputation that, you know, Cork people would, would, would have notions, I think is probably the word Kerry people would use to say that, you know, we believe we could do this. We could be the prime minister. We could be the CEO. We could do whatever we wanted to do. So I think growing up in that environment was very positive, whether it was Cork or whether it was my, whether it was my family or whether it was uh, the schools or whatever we went to. And they're all the local schools and looking at my classmates and where they've all gone on to it's amazing to see where they've ended up so i think just having that confidence and uh, having a very nice place to grow up and a very safe place to grow up you know either made us very naive or very and optimistic which i think are very good things maybe in the world as well because you just presume you can do everything and uh, another funny thing that's kind of a thread in data hug and bridge which is about you know making networking easier is growing up in court because it is that size like you presume everybody knows everyone as well. So I think you're also gonna be automatically nicer to people when you meet them in a cafe in London or randomly in New York, because you're just gonna presume that person you're meeting knows your granny somehow. So I think that kind of forces you uh, to have more uh, softer skills and be easier to integrate with people because you just grew up presuming everybody knew everyone and then you naively land in Australia or in Pakistan and presume that everybody knows everyone uh, as well, which I think is actually a benefit in this, in this day and age. Yeah, I think uh, from my perspective, kind of growing up in Cork gives two things. There's that outside level of self-confidence. And I can even remember my grandmother conditioning me like as a small child telling me, you're going to have an amazing life and you can do whatever you want. Kind of thing. So the thing is, when you're, you know, two, three, four years of age, you internalize that stuff. So, uh, so I think that part's important. And I think the second part is the, to the point you just made you'd never really think about burning anyone in business uh, in Cork because it's like you never know when you're going to have to sit next to that person at a wedding. So the default is towards good behavior just by virtue of the lack of scale in the place. You're going to assume that everyone knows everyone. And if you, you know, if you do wrong by someone that everyone will know it. So it kind of, it encourages uh, better behavior than you might find in, in larger environments maybe. That's actually a great point. That's a really great way to articulate that as well. Like, and going back to the grannies like i remember visiting my granny four or five and they'd be looking out the window and kind of in a nosy way like who's passing and who's doing what it was literally like neighborhood watch on steroids like everyone was kind of aware of what everyone was doing was connected to everyone so i think that means yeah you have to default to trust maybe very quickly but you also default to really good behavior as you said there which is you know a really great thing in business i think particularly building a distributed team remote around the world being able to build rapport and trust with people quickly and actually genuinely, I think is a, is a great skill if you, know, you can access every market in the world now from a quick phone call and a Skype and then to have the ability to connect with someone is a great thing. And then, as you said, if you can establish trust in business in a remote sense, I think that's hugely important as well. And that probably comes down to the soft skills 
let alone just the IQ of the people. It's more the EQ and ability and interest in other people, you know. Fantastic. Uh, Connor, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. It's been really interesting talking to you today. Awesome. Thanks, Barry. Wonderful. So as always, production is from Adnan Tukarits Artis. And thanks again for listening to The Story of Software. Thank <laughs> you.